You're listening to Brumpod, the podcast for small businesses by small businesses. Discussing the topics that matter to you because they matter to us, including marketing, networking, generating business awareness, as well as covering various business tools and technology. Brought to you by Brummies Networking, the home of free, stripped-back business networking. Produced by Happy Content Co. Welcome to episode 42 of Brumpod. I'm here as ever with Jason and Ewan. Hello. Hello. And we also today have Roger Wood, who is the director of venture capitalist for Midven. So welcome, Roger. Hi, glad to be here. Thanks for being here. So we wanted to talk today about investing in small businesses. So I think we'll fire off with the obvious comparison. Uh, So we're all used to seeing programs like Dragon's Den. So is the investment process in real life anything like what people imagine or see on screen? Or is it in reality quite different? So I think Dragon Den, Dragon's Den is quite interesting. I'm probably quite unusual in the industry of considering it to be not a completely bad thing. I think it's been good for the profile of, of the industry, but perhaps less good for people's understanding of the, the process. I think the first thing to recognise is what you see on Dragon's Den is only a, a very small snapshot of what actually happens, both in terms of the actual pitch itself and in terms of the, the process. So you probably see 10 minutes on the TV of various questions and, and answers. That process takes an awful lot longer, actually, uh, on the day. So the actual pitch in question and answer session is much longer, which is probably more representative of how you would find uh, an initial session with a, uh, a venture capitalist. You would obviously get rather longer to, to pitch your wares, as it were, um, in a proper meeting with a venture capitalist rather than the sort of the five minutes or even two minutes they give you on Dragon's Den. So you'd be expected to, to come with a, a fully prepared pitch deck and you'd probably expect to have a good half hour at least to talk through that. But most good venture capitalists will turn that into an interactive session anyway. So you probably sat for a couple of hours. The key headline I give people from from this is that what they don't realize is probably the vast majority of deals that get agreed on Dragon's Den don't actually happen. Yeah. Because after the show and all the rest of it, there is the usual due diligence process in the same way as we would go through in terms of looking at companies' accounts, doing commercial referencing research, et cetera, et cetera. And an awful lot of uh, things come out of that that often means the agreed deals on Dragon's Den don't happen. So behind the scenes, the process is probably very similar to uh, our normal venture capital process, but what people see doesn't reflect that. Yeah. I I saw Deborah Meaden actually on, uh, I think it was Graham Norton last week, and they were asking about this sort of process. And uh, I think she said the, the shortest time anyone had pitched to them, if it was completely awful, uh, was eight minutes. And one of the longest was about over four hours. Uh, but obviously these then, as you say, condensed down into a much smaller segment. Yes. And I think you know, clearly you know, a normal venture capital process will take place over a number of meetings as well. So you would, I mean, we typically say it's it's three or four meetings with us with ourselves to get to a to a term sheet. That wouldn't be untypical um, across the industry as a whole. So the Dragon's Den thing is rather condensed. Well, I believe four hours probably represents a couple of good meetings with a with a venture capitalist. So you know, 
there's always a, always a range in these things. Yeah. So what makes a good um, potent, a prospect for a venture capitalist? Because uh, you, you do see people that sort of come onto Dragon's Den that are very, very underprepared. And one of the things that comes out the most is you haven't done your sums or you've, you've overestimated or, you know, this is based on ambition, not reality. But is it someone that's completely grounded or is it, is there a degree of optimism there that you have to look for? I mean, the numbers is always an interesting thing. We do farm with a lot of businesses that, that we look at. If there's an obvious gap or weakness in the management teams, it's, it's the financial function. And we often help with that by introducing people. So that's not an uncommon theme really in terms of how realistic are the are the numbers i think any uh, investor will always take any set of numbers with a with a pinch of salt but the, the broader piece yeah there needs to be you've got to be optimistic if you're going to run a startup business yeah that's that's got to be your job as, as the founder if, if you aren't optimistic and you don't believe in in your proposition then who is you know, it's it's up to us as the the investor to be the, the cynical one, if you like, oh, yeah. and challenge it and, and question it. You know, you just go home and crawl up in a, and crumple yourself up into a ball um, if you weren't the, the optimistic go-getting type running a, a startup business because it's, it's full of challenges and full of hurdles. So, you know, we often say, you know, first and foremost, it's about management, management, management. Now, that's a very sort of technical term I suppose you know fundamentally it's people is a is a good start point in terms of um, one having that that drive and ambition um, that's the grounded piece yet yeah, you, you can build around a founder is is our view yeah we look at a lot of the management teams that come to us and typically you've got um, a, a technical individual and a sales type individual I'd probably best describe them as an, as an evangelist because they're not necessarily always fully skilled up in the full sales process so you've got those two individuals um, that doesn't give you a full skill set ultimately to, to run a business over over time um, you know, initially it might be fine but as things develop you need to, to bolster around that we've already talked about the finance function obvious area where you can you can fill a fill a gap but yeah over over the time of growth of the business you will professionalize that the management team if you like for, for a better phrase so what you're looking for in those those initial founders you know, is, is enough raw material enough drive and ambition um, and reasonable level of competence clearly to be able to sort of manage day to day. That's 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 really interesting for me because some I've seen two schools with um, with the sort of dragons den type the dragons and also the angel investors where some people have put forward a business plan and that's included a salary or an income from themselves and occasionally you get the hard nosed sort of dragon going. Well, you don't put in costs for yourself because if you want to make this work, you'll take a second job. You'll, you know, you'll work 24 seven. You'll give it 110%. You'll get it off the ground. Then you'll take the profits out. And then you've seen others that have said, look, realistically, you've got to cover your own bills while you get this off the ground. And if you burn yourself out, 
it'll never get off the ground. So again, is there a, is there a happy medium or is there a recommendation that you'd always put in? I think there is a happy medium with this. At the end of the day, people have got to put bread on the table. Um, and so you know, we take the view, certainly, that um, a, a modicum of salary coming out of the business isn't isn't an issue. You know, clearly, if, if, if people are coming asking for, um, I suppose... I was going to say market rate salaries. I mean, when people start talking about market rate salaries, they're talking about you know, salaries in established businesses with, with profits and what have you. And clearly, that's not necessarily um, representative of an early stage startup kind of kind of business. And it's always worth bearing in mind that people who are taking those market salaries probably don't have a, a 25% plus shareholding in the business which ultimately yeah. will have significant value at the at the end so you've got to sort of balance between um the need to to put bread on the table and for people for the people if people running your businesses are feeling under financial pressure they will make strange decisions they will make decisions that aren't necessarily in the best long-term interests of the business um because of for lack of better, sometimes panic sets in and they worry about the worry about the wrong things. You, you need your management team to feel comfortable and, and stable in their own personal position, ultimately, to be yeah. able to, to run the business properly. But also that there's a degree of competence. I, I love, um, I used to work in the serviced office industry and something I was always told is the receptionist at the business centres could always tell which clients were going to succeed, the startup ones and the ones that were going to fail, and it was usually by the car, because if they st- if they came in in a top of the range Jaguar, that's where all their funding had gone. If they came in in a very modest uh, Ford Mondeo, you could tell they were focused on putting the funds into the business, not themselves. And uh, yeah, it's interesting yeah. because there's, I guess, the the nature of individuals involved with with sort of startup early stage businesses is, is changing. If you know, I've been doing this job for 17 years now, scarily enough. And when I first started doing this, most of the time, the people that we saw coming to us for funding were people who had had a reasonably successful career already. You know, they were in the, the corporate world. They'd spied an opportunity or thought they'd spied an opportunity and decided to, to jump out and, and, and set up a, a business. So as a result, they were probably of a, an age where they had family commitments, mortgage, kids, all those, all those sorts of things. You know, they were probably, dare I say, middle-aged men. That was yeah. typically what your, your founder looked like. It's very different now. The age profile is very different um, first and foremost, as well as the, the whole um, ethnic agenda, etc., is all completely different now. But certainly with the, the age part of it, that brings a slightly different perspective around money um, yeah. to the table. You know, certainly younger generations have uh, less obsession with, with owning a house, much more familiar with, with renting everything. You know, that's sort of the the business model that, that they've grown up with. So that brings a slightly different perspective to to their whole view of that, that salary car dynamic. 
Yeah, I mean, that's had a fundamental change on a lot of things. I mean, 17 years is a long time to be an investment. And I know you've said um, on a lot of your, uh, I think, on your LinkedIn profile as well, that one of your, your key areas is tech, which has changed a lot. But, yeah, the culture's changed. There's a lot more diversity in business. There's a lot more leasing rather than buying with cars. There's cloud storage rather than, you know, um, in pouring money into server rooms the serviced offices rather than taking long-term leases. So how's that affected the investment plans? Do you think more sort of short-term or is it, 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 what, what's your take on it? I think ultimately our, our viewpoint is still very much a, a long-term focus. Mm. You know, we, I always draw a distinction between venture capital and, and private equity in, in hugely simplistic terms this, but but you know, private equity is looking for a, a return on this money in three years. Venture capital, I mean, our average holding period is probably six, seven years. And clearly, that's a function of the stage of investment. Largely, you know, private equity investing in established, profitable businesses, venture capital, isn't. Um, but so that six, seven years, yeah, that's is that long term. You know, um, in the in the investment world. It is relatively, relatively long term in a in somebody's life. It's still, I guess, fairly short. But um, you know, so where is it impacted most? Uh, I suppose is you've just got to be a little. Businesses have to be nimble, I guess, and it's it's probably easier for startups to be be nimble and adaptive rather than than large corporates. But you know, you, you, it is an important aspect of, of any kind of startup is that the world changes and the world can change quite rapidly and what you think is a good idea today in you know 12 months time or whatever you know, might be superseded by something so you just always need to be aware of, of what's happening around you in your specific market as well as the sort of the broader economic or technical environment yeah um, so are there any particular sectors or markets that you find attractive or unattractive? I guess I've, I've got, a, I suppose, a bit of an investment thesis in in my mind at, at the moment, which is yeah, looking at, at sectors where there's a direction of travel, a clear trajectory um, for the for the long term, and there's a few obvious things that the last twelve months certainly point to in that regard. So e-commerce, for example, is, a, is an obvious one on the back of COVID. And the, uh, the general consensus is that online shopping has been accelerated by five years over the last 12 months because of COVID and everybody being um, locked away. So you know, we've got a couple of examples in our portfolio which prove that point in terms of the the sales trajectory and growth that they've achieved over the over the last 12 months so that's clearly an interesting area but i think the particularly interesting part of that and i'll, I'll use this term quite a lot is enabling technologies so it's not necessarily just about being an e-commerce business as in a, a a website that, that sells stuff in the very simplest form, but actually what are the, the underlying technologies that sit behind that, the delivery platforms, etc., um, the payment platforms, those kind of things are, are key. You know, without without those, 
you know, the e-commerce side can't sell anything. So it's, it's developments in those enabling technologies that I think are particularly interesting area going forward um, in a sector that's clearly going to carry on growing rapidly. You can also look at healthcare, and there's a couple of aspects here, clearly diagnostics. So uh, the need for a vaccine for COVID goes without saying, but that has clearly prompted a significant interest generally from the investor community into diagnostics in general. It sort of made people realise actually that having diagnostic platforms, um, et cetera, is an interesting space whether it be for COVID or other other diseases. And the other aspect of healthcare that I think is particularly interesting is uh, domiciliary care. So COVID has, there was already a trend before COVID for people to have a preference to be cared for at home rather than cared for in a home. Yeah. COVID, again, for unfortunate reasons, is, is clearly going to accelerate that trajectory and direction even more to be able to do that well safely properly is going to need a whole host of enabling technologies to come back to that that term to sit behind it and to enable a a newly mobilized workforce to be fully connected to all the, the systems and data that they will need to be able to to carry out their work properly yeah, I mean, we've noticed um, from some previous podcasts we've done, uh, particularly around the pandemic, is it's polarised the need between socialisation and isolation. So people like meeting up to go for a coffee, but then they also now like the click and collect apps from coffee shops and the home delivery apps. Um, they get the product in the isolation and the safety of their own home, but they don't get the socialization and, and meeting up. And yeah, the hospitality industry has had to change very rapidly and use a lot of technology to fulfill orders. You know, restaurants have turned into takeaway services. Home delivery has, um, has sprung up. Um, as you said, uh, e-commerce has advanced five years in the last 12 months and the logistics are now struggling to keep up. Um, well, that's a very interesting example there. There is a shortage of cardboard. Yeah. Um, you know, Amazon clearly are, are throwing out packages like uh, like No Tomorrow, um, along with a whole host of other e-commerce kind of businesses. And now, all of a sudden, sourcing cardboard is proving to be hugely difficult for many businesses. Yeah. We might blame Amazon for that. They need to sort out their packaging so they're not sending out. There was one time I ordered an SD card for a camera, obviously tiny, like a fingernail size, and it arrived in a in a box that could have easily uh, uh, transported a twelfth pack of loo rolls. It was huge. Exactly, and that's all they had in stock at the time. That's the whole problem. They didn't have the uh, the range to uh, to deliver. No, I, I, I think it it's, um, illustrates that there are a lot of very bored and unhappy people packing for Amazon. Well, yeah. I mean, we looked, we looked, we're looking at a proposition at the moment, and I won't say what it is or, or what it does, but they use cardboard boxes. Um, interestingly, my wife's worked in for procurement for, for many years, and so I often get her view on, on certain things. And when this item was delivered... 
she took a look at it and the first thing she said to me was well, they could take three layers of card out of that and the box would still be sturdy enough to deliver what they're delivering so yeah, she was coming at that from the point of view for me that yeah there's some cost savings this business could make but I guess there's just a, there's a broader picture in there in terms of you know getting getting packaging fit for purpose which yeah in the current uh, in environment is is absolutely key critical for the you know long-term benefit of of everybody absolutely so for for a typical small to medium sized business is there generally a specific point in the journey where it's applicable or not applicable to consider seeking investment I mean, what, what makes a business investment ready so this is always a, a, a difficult question to answer because there are a whole host of, of funds and investment types out there um, for businesses to consider. There's a fairly well-trodden path which you can sort of characterise in terms of a, a life journey for people, which is you know, often it's friends and family as a, as a start point um, to help people get businesses off the ground. You then typically move into the world of, of business angel investment, and I guess increasingly that's I suppose been taken over by larger, more professionalised EIS investment through through funds. Although they're arguably sort of sit more alongside us as sort of first first institutional uh, investor. So you know, VC probably sits as third in the queue in terms of the order that you would you would go to to these things um you know just to cover it off debt would sit much further down the line as a as a general rule for these kind of businesses because you're just not going to have the capability to, to service it you're not going to be profitable etc um what's a good point then to to come and talk to me or any other venture capitalist I think market where where you are in terms of market engagement is is probably a key factor in this, and that's not necessarily have you got customers or have you got a a, a pipeline. Um, certainly, that that's what what we're looking for. But you know, there are people who invest at a proof of concept stage. Yeah, have you? got any kind of evidence that there is a clear market demand for what you have created it's it's a bit like the, the sort of the, the square wheel thing or the best thing yeah I've, I've invented the best thing since since sliced bread now, you might think that but does anybody else think that so yeah. it's about having some some degree of, of market validation to uh, to support the idea that, that what you've got is a is a good proposition. I mean, it's it's interesting. I'm aware of a, uh, a sort of an accelerator program um, over in the East Midlands, actually, and um, and their primary focus in giving people a bit of money to help develop their proposition is to get them to go out into the marketplace and talk to potential customers and get feedback from potential customers to create a feedback loop essentially to help design the product stroke service 
to, to meet the needs of the customer base. Now, clearly, there's always going to be a customer out there who wants this bell or, or that whistle. You, you, can, you can take it to the extreme, and we have seen it over the years with people developing pieces of software, what have you, that they, they won't let their baby free into the market until it's absolutely perfect. I mean, you only have to look at Microsoft. You know, Microsoft issues software all the time with bugs in it. You're never going to create the perfect product, but you need to have enough of a core or MVP, the minimum viable product, for lack of a better better term. Um, yeah. That meets. Have you ever moved on an MVP that wasn't quite ready because you knew that it was the time to bring it to market was was optimum? And the reason I'm asking that is we're coming out of lockdown. There's going to be a lot of businesses that had hibernated or you know, held the fire, kept their powder dry, pick your analogy, they're all at the starting line and they're all waiting to go. And is it, is the timing in, critical or is it best to see who goes where first and then follow those trends? It's always difficult to be a leader. I think it's, that's very fair to say. And it's, it's, it's certainly easier to be a, be a follower um, learn from from somebody else's mistakes, but you, know, you can't be you can't be far behind. You know, um, you look at the likes of Deliveroo and and those kind of ilk. You know, long after they've been operational for many years, we're still getting umpteen business plans a year of people who are saying they were going to be the next Deliveroo. Um, yeah. So following is yeah. fine, but you know you've got to be sort of pretty close on the on the trail of some of somebody because otherwise you know you can just have your opportunity taken out from from under you. I think a, a key thing with 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 some of these kind of things is making sure you have enough funding. You know, so to to directly answer the the original question, I've actually invested in something which failed because we backed it too early. And we couldn't keep it funded long enough for the market to catch up. And this was smart eaters, um, which are, you know. That must be heartbreaking that you, you were kind of, you were that close to being a pioneer. You were close to being on the tip and too early. That's a... That, that's, that, that's, that actually surprises me because you always think, yeah, but then again, look at the hospitality trade. How many good chains have gone under before the light at the end of the tunnel? Just because the fund they they ran out of they ran out of funds before the opportunity to re, to take advantage came to light. Yes, and um, yeah, I guess this is where you know, we always start with people and say, well, yeah, everything will take twice as long and twice as much money as you think it, it will. Um, and sometimes, you know, that's our start point. And even you know, sometimes we get it get it wrong. We don't get it right every time. But I think interesting. I mean, if you look at the the restaurant thing you talk about, um, you know, the one thing that that COVID has also it's it's shone a light on certain restaurant chains. I think it's fair to say. Um, and there's certain chains out there for example that and I won't name it on, on the score but I'll use it as an example with a number of my portfolio companies that are sort of operating in a, a space where where voucher codes 
can can come into play. Um, uh, certain restaurant chains were incredibly full, but actually nobody who sat at any one of those tables was paying full price for what they were buying. They all had a voucher code. Yeah. And they were all paying you know, a significant discount. And I think if, if your whole business model is predicated on the fact that you're only getting people through the door because they're getting a discount, then there's something more fundamentally wrong with your, with your proposition. So what, what's the application process like for someone seeking investment? How long is it from the point of application through to receiving the investment? And what, what are the, the main steps that it entails? So we would typically, certainly for us, we would typically say to somebody from, from first meeting to money in the bank would typically be a three-month process. If you're advising a company that's going to go on a fundraising uh, plan, you'd say to them, you need to give yourself at least six months as a, as a rule to do it. Um, yeah. In terms of putting together your plan, identifying the right investors to go to, and then engaging with those investors, hopefully, you know, a handful rather than, than just one. Um, but then once you're engaged with, with people, then yeah, yeah, having serious discussions, three months shouldn't be an unreasonable process. And we can break that down further and I would sort of break it into into two halves, really, which is the first half is number of meetings, digging further down in depth and detail each meeting, asking for, for further information to get to the term sheet point. And then from term sheet, we typically say it's a six week process, which is two weeks for us to, to do our internal checks and balances, get investment committee approval two weeks to do due diligence and then two weeks of, of legal process. And the due diligence aspect varies from investor to best investor, but it's largely has three aspects to it, which is financial, clearly doing some proper checks of the, the accounts to make sure that they, they're accurate and the accounting systems are producing numbers that actually reflect where the business is at. Um, and sensitizing financial models, that kind of thing. Uh, commercial due diligence, so a big thing that we do, you know, we, we like to talk to customers or, or potential customers. Um, it's back to the point I was saying earlier about the whole market engagement thing. It's just always useful to understand what the market thinks of a company or, or product. And then yeah, legal due diligence, which covers everything from have uh, you got all the appropriate insurances in place? For, for your business type, um, you know, property leases, um, supplier contracts, distribution contracts, you know, all varying depending on your, your particular particular business model. But that would be a sort of a fairly typical process. And the would you normally I'd... be, sorry to interrupt, would you normally be um, approached in the first instant by an accountant or do people come direct or what? It's a very broad mix, actually. I suppose because we've been doing this an awfully long time. I mean, the, you know, whilst I've been here 17 years, the, the, the firm has been doing this for, for 25 years, so it's very well known within in the Midlands. So 
there's an awful lot of people that just that know of us. Um, so if you, you're looking for venture capital in the region, you know, we're going to be fairly close to the top of everybody's list in reality just because we've been doing it for, for so long. So probably half of what we see comes to us direct. Although if I'm being brutally honest, we're probably not as good as we should be at, at checking with the people who come to us direct or actually, okay, was it that you just happened to have just had a chat with your accountant who said, pick up the phone to, to Midven or, or the lawyer, etc. Um, and then it's a, the range of, say, the accountants, lawyers, um, business coaches, the local enterprise partnerships, all those, yeah, all those kind of things. It's, it's quite a broad spread beyond the ones that come to us direct. Um, yeah, we might see one thing a year from, from a particular accountant um, or lawyer if we if we're lucky because they don't necessarily see an awful lot of these things so we yeah we have to we have to spread sort of far and wide in terms of the, the contact base and, and that then is reflected in in the nature of where the inquiries come from and is there a typical standardized uh size stake you normally take or does it depend on the company and how much hand holding they they may need along the way or is it again is it all entirely dependent on the multitude of variables yeah, there are a multitude of variables. I mean, the, the hand-holding bit, from our point of view, is a, is a given. You know, we, we roll our sleeves up, get involved to help companies um, in any way we can. So the extent to which we think it's going to need more or less of that, our view is they'll get, we will give them a lot of it anyway to, to help. So the shareholding is much more a function of stage of development quantum of investment and potential exit value um, so the size of the market opportunity those are sort of the, the main variables you know, we always take a minority stake that's just a given we we don't want to be um, we don't want to be majority shareholders in uh, in businesses and you know as much as people might try and claim as much yeah it, it's not a science it is a more of an art form when it comes to, to valuing businesses at a at an early stage. You know, it's it's easy enough when you get to the exit point and you've got significant revenue, significant profits, you can apply market multiples to to what you think the business is, is worth. But in the earlier stages where you're still nascent with most of those things, it's it's more difficult. And ultimately you want to make sure that management have got sufficient of the equity to be incentivized to drive the business to the end value that you all want. So there's no point sitting there going, well, actually, we think the business is worth X if that's going to result in a tiny management shareholding. Because ultimately, we only make money if management make money. Yeah. Exit obviously involves disposing of the company. So... Your enthusiastic entrepreneur ends up with money, but not a company. Is that is that a fair but possibly brutal way of putting it? It's a, it's a, it's a very black and white way of putting it. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I, I do that from Doug. No, Doug. that's that's absolutely fine. It's 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 key. It's it's a conversation that we have at the very outset with businesses that. For us to get a return on our money, there needs to be an exit. 
we're not invest we're not going to invest in lifestyle businesses it, it doesn't doesn't work so there needs to be a meeting of our minds from the outset that we're in this together for a journey of five six seven years and then we're all going to get a big pot of gold at the end of it again if you go back to the earlier conversation about what the the profile of entrepreneur looks like now that's quite interesting 10 years ago that was a very easy conversation to have with people because the people we were backing were typically 45 plus and so run a business for five six seven years sell it big pot of money they're in their 50s fantastic great everyone's a, a winner have that conversation with an entrepreneur of a different age profile in their 20s in their 30s and you say right in five six seven years time we're going to sell this and have a pot of gold and that's great as you can imagine that's a slightly different dynamic because then they're sitting there going well okay great but then what you know, i'm not going to spend 30 years on the golf course um so it makes the, the the conversation slightly more difficult there's two answers to it i guess one is that more often than not the buying company will want to keep management on board at least for a period of time and i've seen on numerous occasions now actually that people have gone on to have fantastic careers in the acquiring business and move themselves up through the through the, the corporate hierarchy within the businesses they acquire and some of that is because of the nature of the individual they have much better drive focus enthusiasm than the vast majority of people in the corporate that support them who are just employees you know there's just there's a different mindset so i think often there's a there's a great opportunity for the for the entrepreneur to move into that um the bigger bigger environment once they've, they've sold the other side of it is they might go and do it again and that might sound like the most bizarre thing in the world given how difficult it is to to get a business off the ground and, and make it successful, the sort of the pain and heartache you go through. But certain individuals, you know, that's that's a big driver for them. And I guess it's much easier to do it a second time around with the security of, of money in the bank. And actually, yeah. I said there's two answers. There is a there is a third answer to this, which is that there is a there's a whole industry of investors out there who invest different sums of money all the way up the food chain. Um, and we've done a number of transactions over the years where we have sold, in inverted commas, the business to the next level of investor up. So we have one particular business in the portfolio where we, we did a what's called a secondary transaction where actually everybody got to take some some money off the, the table. So we as an investor did, management did. So the situation had been de-risked for management. And then there was also more money put in to to drive further growth 
And yeah, I suppose two things happened. One, with the de-risking and the pressure taken off management, that made it much easier for them to just take aggressive growth decisions. Um, and a new investor coming in also helps just add a new impetus to things. And that business went on from being, no, I won't put the numbers on it, but it, 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 it went up three times in value um, subsequently with the new investor on board and then was sold wow. to, a, to a trade investor. Um, yeah, so, and the industry, yeah, if you look at the private equity industry without wanting to, to sort of be, be negative about it, yeah, there's a lot of transactions that happen within the private equity. Yeah, they do secondary, I don't know, I was going to, I'm not sure what, then third, then fourth. Yeah, they just they pass the they pass the businesses up the up the chain of investors as they get as they get bigger, and in those kind of instances, you know, management stay with the business and, and keep growing it. So you, you can achieve an exit for for somebody like us without management necessarily having to to step out. The key for us is always that there is a there's a third party involved because that's what generates uh, the right value. You know, everybody best maximizes their value on, on selling a business through a through a trade sale because there's the there's a dynamic to the to the negotiation there. If management are looking to buy us out, um, then clearly the dynamic doesn't work so well because we want to maximize the number and they want to minimize the number. If you've got a yeah. third party investor driving the driving the transaction um, then that creates a market dynamic that will that will drive a proper proper value for, for us as, a, as an investor so there's yeah there's multiple ways you can you can sort of deal with that that black and white picture and, and turn it into into some some nicer shades of gray so I have a question. It sounds more like a closing question, but it's I'm not allowed to close. Richard closes the show off. It's, it's in his contract. Gets really angry if anyone else does that. But you've given us the example of the one that got away, which was smart meters. Have you got one where this is one where you think, even I didn't expect it to go that well? You've got like a standalone project where you think, I'm... I'm proudest of, of this one above all else for what we achieved with it? Um, I mean, probably the one that, that I, I just talked about where we did the um, the secondary transaction before the the, the final trade sale um, would be the, the, the obvious answer. And I suppose the obvious reason for that is that we made a 36 times return on our investment in that. <laughs> But, yeah, I'd say that's pretty good. Yeah, I'd, 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 I mean, I'd have been happy with thirty-two, to be honest. Yeah, but thirty-six, that's good. But the, I guess the reason we the reason we we, we like that that yeah. one particularly day is that it, it's just maybe a good example of the fact that you know what venture capitalists is not all just about money. I mean, yeah. yes, we made a, a huge amount of money out of it, fantastic. But this business put a piece of software onto um, your local GP's computer such that when you went in with whatever ailment you had and you put it into the system looking for the, the, the appropriate drug to, to give you a prescription for, um, this piece of software integrated to the, to the centralised NHS systems 
so that the doctor could prescribe the cheaper generic drug that did exactly the same as the highly expensive branded drug that the GP was just sold on the golf course the day before. Um, so not only did we make an awful lot of money out of it, it actually saved the NHS a huge amount of money um, at the same time. Well, that's definitely something to be proud of. Absolutely. Indeed. So I suppose finally, where, where can people find out more about you online? Uh, website, obviously, uh, midvent.co.uk is the, the obvious place um, to start. Um, you know, we're, we're increasingly active on, on LinkedIn, as you'd imagine, um, with most people being, being sat at home. Um, and I guess, you know, certainly locally here within the Midlands, the, the, our main focus at the moment is our Midlands Engine Investment Fund, um, which also has its own, um, own website as well. Well, that has certainly given us a really good snapshot into what the real world of investing is like and uh, I think certainly dispelled a lot of myths that, and misconceptions that a lot of people will probably have had and be included with uh, the comparisons to Dragon's Den and that kind of thing. So I think without further ado, uh, thank you ever so much, Roger, for joining us on this one. No problem at all. You're welcome. And thank you for listening and we shall see you next time. You've been listening to Brumpod the podcast for small businesses by small businesses brought to you by Brummies Networking, the home of free stripped back business networking produced by Happy Content Co. Follow us on Twitter at Brumpod. You can subscribe to future episodes using Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts and several other podcast platforms. Just search for Brumpod. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then please do consider leaving us a review. Music by Bureaucratic. We'll see you on the next episode. <laughs>